As I mentioned last Sunday, this past Sunday, this Sunday, we're focusing on foreign policy, national security issues. Last Sunday, we focused on China. This Sunday, we're focused on probably the hottest of the many hot spots around the world, uh, namely North Korea and the relationship between the United States and North Korea. We're very pleased to have with us today another old friend of mine from the foreign policy national security community, an expert not just on North Korea, but also on China. Today he's talking about North Korea, and that expert is Gordon Chang. Gordon is the author of The Coming Collapse of China and The Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World, both from Random House. His writings, as we all know, have appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, among other publications. Whether your cable news leanings run to MSNBC, or Fox, or CNN. Uh, Gordon is no stranger to you. He is a frequent television commentator on these issues. He's also a columnist for the Daily Beast and Forbes.com, and he blogs at the World Affairs Journal. I learned something about Gordon and his wife, Lydia, who is here with us today also in the back. They used to be, like nearly everybody in Washington, lawyers, international lawyers, <laughs> focused on China at Baker and McKinsey and uh, Paul Weiss in China, and then they got a revelation Gordon focused on writing a book, and uh, the rest is history. So with that, please join me in welcoming Gordon Chang. Thank you so much, Clark. Yes, I, I indeed had a revelation, and I married my wife. <laughs> a few hours ago, North Korea launched what looks like a new ballistic missile. And by all accounts, the launch was a success. But in a land of mysteries, puzzles, riddles, the question is not why did North Korea test a missile, but why has it not conducted its sixth nuclear test? Technicians have buried the device in a very deep tunnel. They've closed off the shaft, and they've completed all the initial preparations. And we have seen that the cabling has been laid um, for not only setting off the nuke, but also for monitoring the resulting detonation, and they've pumped the site free of water. Question is, why hasn't it gone off? Now, the only thing that we know is that workers in North Korea are now playing volleyball at the test site because they're just waiting around, and they're waiting for a political decision from the leader of the country, Kim Jong-un. Now, many analysts expected the test to be on or before April 15th, which is the Day of the Sun, the 105th anniversary of the birth of North Korean regime founder Kim Il-sung. It didn't happen. Then people thought, well, it would occur by April 25th, Military Foundation Day, the 85th, uh, the 85th anniversary of the founding of the Korean People's Army. It didn't happen. So why are the North Koreans so uncharacteristically hesitant? Why hasn't Kim Jong-un put his pudgy little finger on that proverbial button? <laughs> I have two theories, one of them involving our president, President Donald J. Trump, and the other one involving another president, Moon Jae-in. But we'll start with our leader. And to do that, we're going to go down to sunny Florida at Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> there, President Trump, in two short days, threw out decades of settled thinking of, on China, decades of settled thinking about how we approach the Chinese state and how we treat its leaders. 
He did that in the beginning of last month. Then Trump put his Chinese counterpart in place, not according him the respect that Chinese leaders normally believe that they're entitled to. We have never seen such a thing. As a result, Xi Jinping flew back to Beijing. He probably was stunned and seething, maybe both. The takedown of the Chinese leader occurred well before the pair shook hands. Xi Jinping's plane touched down in West Palm Beach before President Trump's, a breach of protocol. Now, the Chinese leader already looked like a supplicant by traveling to Florida to see Trump, but that impression was heightened because of the order of arrival. Xi Jinping first, Donald Trump second. This slight, which was not noticeable to most Americans, nonetheless was obvious to the Chinese, and clearly something was new. It got worse for Xi Jinping in Florida, because on the next day, at dinner, over what Trump called the, quote, most beautiful piece of chocolate cake, <laughs> the president, our president, delivered a blow. During dinner, President Trump announced to the world and to Xi Jinping that he had ordered missile strikes on Syria, a longtime Chinese friend. And the timing of the strikes appears to be to have had maximum political effect on the Chinese leader. Not waiting for Xi Jinping to leave Florida, that broke a dozen diplomatic norms, and clearly the Chinese leader was not accustomed to that. So, my theory is that Xi Jinping went back to Beijing, and he immediately got on the phone to Kim Jong-un and said, don't take on Trump. Don't test the nuke. That's the first theory. The second. The North Koreans, I believe, may not want to derail the chances of Moon Jae-in in the Tuesday presidential by-election. Moon was obviously North Korea's candidate because he promised to reorient North Korea, South Korean policy away from the United States and towards China and Russia. Specifically, Moon talked about talking with Kim Jong-un. Moon also campaigned on restoring economic links with the North, specifically reopening and expanding the Kaesong Industrial Zone, which is just north of the demilitarized zone which separates the two Koreas. At the Industrial Zone, there were 125 South Korean light manufacturers that each year shoveled somewhere between 90 to $120 million to the North Korean regime. Moon also talked about his opposition to the American Terminal High Altitude Area Defense System, designed to shoot down North, Kore uh, North Korean missiles. Now, many think, in general, that Moon will resurrect the Sunshine Policy. Now, this general approach, which is sort of um, almost unconditional, one-way benefits for the North Korean regime, undercuts the policies of Washington. It undercuts our policies of tightening sanctions to deny the North Koreans the means, the financial means, to build more ballistic missiles and more nukes. Yet, our concern about Moon is not so much about specific policies, but about his general way of thinking about the United States. During the campaign, his signature line was that South Korea should, quote, learn to say no to the Americans. Moreover, Moon during the campaign made a number of statements that seem inconsistent with the maintenance of the U.S.-South Korea Mutual Defense Treaty. 
So no wonder Kim Jong-un didn't want to do anything like testing a nuke that might convince South Korean voters to go someplace else, either to the right-wing candidate or to the center-left candidate. Well, as we've seen, now Moon has been elected. He was elected by a landslide. And perhaps Kim Jong-un feels safe that he can now do things that are provocative. We will have to wait to see which of these theories, if either of them is correct. And the way we'll do that is we'll see how soon Kim actually does test a, a nuke. If, for instance, he waits for a long time, maybe until the end of this year, maybe until 2018, it probably suggests that he was intimidated either directly or indirectly through Xi Jinping by Trump. However, if he tests before then, maybe it's because he feels now that, that Moon Jae-in has been elected, he can do what he wants. And we will have to wait. Now, North Korea didn't test the nuke, but there's also something else North Korea didn't test. North Korea has not tested an intercontinental ballistic missile. At the moment, North Korea has three missiles that can reach the lower 48 states. The Taipodong-2, the KN-08, and a variant of the KN-08, the KN-14. Now, none of these missiles have been tested at full range, and the last two missiles, the KN-08 and the KN-14, have not been tested at all. But they are based on proven technologies, and in the absence of American cyber sabotage, they probably work. In addition, there could be a fourth missile. On April 15th, the North Koreans paraded a large canister. The canister was big enough to hold a three-stage missile, and the canister sat on a mobile launcher. That 16-wheel mobile launcher is Chinese. We know who manufactured it. It was the Sanjiang Special Vehicle Operation Company, and that is a unit of China Aerospace Science and Industry Corp. Now, Kasich, as China Aerospace is known, is connected with the People's Liberation Army of China. Also, the canister itself looks to be Chinese in origin. The Chinese used that canister for one of two missiles, either the DF-31 or the DF-41. The DF-31 has a range of at least 5,000 miles, and if launched from North Korea, can reach the Pacific Northwest. The DF-41 has a range of at least 8,700 miles. Now, this is not to say conclusively that the Chinese transferred either the DF-31 or the DF-41 to the North Koreans. After all, the North Koreans could have been parading an empty canister. Or maybe the North Koreans stole the plans from the Chinese. But nonetheless, when we see this ominous-looking container, we have to think one thing. We have to start asking the Chinese some questions, some pointed questions. And the international community also needs to ask some pointed questions about how the North Koreans got the missile that they launched on April 16th. That missile, which was fired early in the morning and which was not a success, looks very much like the missile that the North Koreans tested on February 12th. The February 12th missile, in turn, looks like the missile that they tested on August 24th. And the August 24th missile bears a striking, striking resemblance to China's JL-1 submarine-launched missile. Are you starting to see a 
pattern here? Chinese missiles are mysteriously ending up in North Korea's inventory. Moreover, an enterprise associated with the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, sold the North Koreans the chassis for the mobile launcher that carries the KN-08. Now, the, North, the Chinese told the Obama administration that the North Koreans told the Chinese that the North Koreans wanted the chassis for logging operations. That explanation is not credible for a number of reasons, but one of them is that the chassis is wider than the roads leading to North Korea's logging areas. Washington, however, accepted the answer. My sense, I can't prove it, but my sense is that the Chinese not only sold the chassis, but they also sold the rest of the vehicle, the transporter erector launcher. In other words, they sold the missile interface. Now, supplying the vehicle is critical because the KN-08 is North Korea's first usable missile that can really be a weapon. China's longest-range launcher, the Taipodong-2, is not a usable weapon. It takes weeks to transport, assemble, fuel, and test. We can kill it on the launch pad. KN-08, thanks to our friends in China, is mobile. And that is important because it can hide and shoot. And because it can hide, we cannot, with any assurance, kill it on the ground. So therefore, the Chinese made the North Koreans a real threat to the American homeland. Now, at this time, the North Koreans don't have a nuclear warhead that fits on the KN-08 or the other two long-range missiles. I think it's going to take maybe four years for them to develop that technology, shorter if the Chinese give it to them. The North Koreans have, in all probability, been able to mate a nuke to their intermediate-range Nodong missile, which can cover all of, the South Korea, uh, all of South Korea plus all of Japan. This means that in order for the North Koreans to mate a nuke to their longest-range missiles, it doesn't take a technical breakthrough. All it takes is a little bit of technical refinement, extension, and improvement of the knowledge that they already have. So there is a deadline if we feel that we cannot disarm Pyongyang and if we can't deter them. And the question is, can we deter the North Koreans? Many people think that we can. After all, we deterred a far more capable Soviet Union for decades, and we're deterring the Chinese now. But we have to remember that the Soviet Union, at least up until the late 1980s, was more stable than North Korea. And China, for all of its weaknesses today, is far more stable than North Korea. North Korea is not stable at all. Most analysts say, yeah, North Korea looks pretty good. Kim Jong-un, the current ruler, they believe, consolidated his power soon after taking over from his father in December 2011 when his father had a heart attack. And these analysts point to all of the executions of Kim Jong-un, at least 155 senior regime figures. When you add in the junior figures, maybe 500 people. And so analysts say, well, look, this proves that Kim Jong-un must be in control. I look at all the executions and say Kim Jong-un is not in control. I believe that his grip on power is slipping. Why? Well, if Kim Jong-un were really that stable, then why would he need to continue killing more officials? And we have to remember that 
whether Kim Jong-un is strong or weak, blood demands blood. Killing people starts a vicious cycle that is hard to stop. Now, beginning in late January, we saw a number of instances of regime instability. So, for instance, there was the detention and the demotion of the Minister of State Security, General Kim Won Hong. There was the execution of five of General Kim's senior subordinates. We all know about the assassination of Kim Jong-un's elder half-brother. That was done with VX, a nerve agent in a public place in Malaysia. And there was also the absence of the head of North Korea's strategic missile forces from the February 12th launch of the intermediate range missile, indicating, of course, possible problems at the top of the North Korean military. Now, this instability means that Kim Jong-un probably has a low threshold of risk. And risky things that he might do could certainly surprise us. All this means, perhaps, we can't deter him. He, his father, and his grandfather had a history of using violence to upset status quo that they found to be unacceptable. And if we cannot be sure that we can deter Kim, it means we only have a few years to defang him. President Trump's defanging strategy involves cooperation of China. That's the China that candidate Trump last year called a currency manipulator. That's the China that is supposedly a stealer of US jobs. That's the China that has been a gouger of the United States, according to him. That was candidate Trump. Now President Trump looks at China as America's partner. Now this, this, at first glance, looks as the mother of all flip-flops. And for people like me who would like to see a more resolute China policy, it is indeed concerning. But President Trump has actually said what he's going to do. He did that, for instance, in an April 16th tweet. Quote, why would I call China a currency manipulator when they are working with us on the North Korean problem? He continued this theme and faced the nation last week when he said, quote, trade is very important, but massive warfare with millions, potentially millions of people being killed, that, as we would say, trumps trade, unquote. Today, in this town and in other places, there is indeed great hope that the Chinese will help us in disarming North Korea. So there are two questions that we have to ask. Can China disarm North Korea? And if it can, does it want to? On the first question, Chinese diplomats work overtime to convince us that they have, quote unquote, no leverage over the North Koreans. That's a quote from Ambassador Fu Ying. It was mentioned in Australia a couple weeks ago, but intended for our ears. To me, that sounds sort of like an excuse for not doing anything, because I believe that if we are going to look at China's leverage, we can use another word, and that is overwhelming. China has overwhelming leverage over North Korea. We know that China accounts for more than 90% of North Korea's external trade. China provides more than 90% of North Korea's crude oil, much of it on, discretion, on concessionary terms. And China, of course, is North Korea's primary backer in diplomatic councils, such as the UN. As they say, the Kim regime could neither bark nor bite without China. Without China, maybe there's no North Korea. China provides many things to the North Korean regime, 
but the most important is confidence. Confidence in the minds of senior regime leaders that they are safe, that they're safe from the United States, they are safe from South Korea, they are safe from the rest of the world. Beijing might not have the power to change Kim Jong-un's mind. Maybe nobody does. But Beijing can change the minds of people around him. Beijing can convince them that having these weapons is no longer in their interest. And probably the Chinese can convince senior regime elements in Pyongyang that maybe they can do without Kim Jong-un, who is increasingly unpopular. And that brings us to the second question. Will China use its considerable leverage over the North Korean regime to disarm it? There is an indication, an important indication, that China doesn't want to. Yes, of course, China on February 18 announced that in order to comply with UN sanctions, it was no longer going to buy any North Korean coal for the rest of 2017. However, China has bought coal from the North Koreans in February after the announcement. It bought coal in March, and it bought coal in April. A week and a half ago, the Chinese Foreign Ministry responded to um, comments in the, among analysts that showed North Korean ships were in Chinese ports unloading coal. Satellite imagery showed it. What did the Chinese say? Oh, we unloaded the ships for, quote unquote, humanitarian reasons, and we did not, quote unquote, import the coal. Seriously? All this suggests that China really does not want to disarm their friends, the North Koreans. Now, Trump has said that he will disarm the North Koreans if China doesn't do so. And the question is, well, how can he do that? There are four things I think we need to talk about. First of all, the United States, of course, can use military force to take out North Korea's missile and nuke sites. But that is the absolute, absolute last resort. About 26 million South Koreans live in their capital and its metropolitan area. That's within 30, 35 miles of the demilitarized zone. On the other side of the demilitarized zone is the world's fourth largest army, and it is forward deployed on the zone. The North Koreans, I believe, would not attack the South if we conducted surgical strikes on their weapon sites. But no American president is going to try to find out unless there is absolutely no other choice. Let's remember that we have 28,500 servicemen and women in South Korea. Second, the U.S. on its own can tighten sanctions on North Korea. Now, there are many analysts who say, well, American sanctions haven't worked. They're right, but that's only half the story. The other half of the story is that the non-working American sanctions are not that severe. As American policymakers often say, American sanctions are designed to bring the North Koreans to their senses, not to their knees. Now that it's clearly demonstrated that the North Koreans are not going to be brought to their senses, we do have to bring the North Koreans to their knees, as unpleasant as that thought is. And bringing the North Koreans to their knees involves a number of things but it includes inspecting ships, North Korean ships, on the high seas. UN rules do not permit across the board high seas inspections of North Korean ships, but it doesn't matter. The North Koreans themselves, three times this century, 
have made statements that have abrogated the 1953 armistice that ended the fighting in the Korean War. The U.S. takes position that the truce is still in existence, but as a technical legal matter, and Clark, you mentioned I am a lawyer, or was a lawyer, um, that position is untenable. I think we should take the North Koreans at their word. If there's no armistice, there is no agreement not to use force. If there's no agreement not to use force, we can sink North Korean ships. If we can sink North Korean ships, we can certainly inspect them. We need to inspect North Korean ships because North Korea has been selling missiles and nukes around the world, especially to their partners in Iran. This, ladies and gentlemen, is one trade that we absolutely have to stop. Third, we can inflict pain on China so that it has no choice but to comply with our requests to help us disarm North Korea. As an initial matter, we should sanction Chinese entities that sell semi-processed fissile material, components, and equipment for North, Korea's, for North Korea's various weaponization programs. It is simply unacceptable for Chinese entities to say transfer ballistic missiles and for us not to do anything. But the U.S. hasn't done anything. And of course, there should be sanctions on Chinese financial institutions involved with North Korea's weaponization programs. Any bank, I believe, any Chinese bank that does any business with a Chinese enterprise that has been designated by our Treasury Department as a proliferator should be denied access to its dollar accounts in New York. And here's another suggestion. Any bank that knowingly works with the North Korean government should also be unplugged. We know that one culprit is the Bank of China, one of China's so-called Big Four banks. The most recent UN report on compliance with sanctions lists the Bank of China for its complicity in a conspiracy to hide money for North Korea. And matter of fact, it looks like Bank of China was the ringleader. We should ask ourselves, why is Bank of China allowed to do business in the United States in these circumstances? Unplugging Chinese financial systems from the global market will rock the world. But on the other hand, it will show for the first time since 1994 that the United States is actually serious about protecting the American homeland. I don't understand why we can expect the Chinese to help us when we have not demonstrated that seriousness to protect ourselves. Let's show Beijing that we are serious. Let's say to them, you can do business with North Korea, you can do business with us, but you can't do business with both. And there's one last point, the fourth thing that President Trump can do. Whatever we think about our North Korean policies, we have an obligation to enforce our own laws. And that means, for instance, no bank gets to use the U.S. financial system to launder money for the North Koreans or anybody else, and nobody gets to use our financial system to steal money. In February of last year, cyber criminals stole $81 million from the account of the Central Bank of Bangladesh at the New York Federal Reserve Bank. The Wall Street Journal reports that North Korea is believed to be the culprit behind this. Paper also reports that federal prosecutors are looking at Chinese middlemen who quote-unquote orchestrated the theft. Now, if such middlemen, Chinese middlemen, were involved, then Chinese banks were involved. 
And if Chinese banks were involved, we have to ask ourselves, what is Beijing's involvement in all of this? Chinese enterprises and banks are tightly controlled by the central government and the Communist Party in China. Beijing knows of their sensitive relationships, and that would include, of course, all relationships with North Korea. And if it doesn't know about them, it doesn't want to know about them. Beijing cannot run a police state and then disclaim responsibility for what happens in that state to say it doesn't know what's going on, especially when we're talking about state enterprises and large state banks. For decades, Americans have not enforced their own laws. We haven't enforced money laundering laws and others, and in large part because we have been concerned about the reaction of the Communist Party of China. Beijing, of course, has taken advantage of that laxity to support their North Korean friends. Well, if we're not going to enforce our own laws, then I think that President Trump has a moral obligation to get behind the microphone, he loves publicity after all, to get behind the microphone and say this, quote, I am seeking the repeal of federal statutes on, against money laundering and theft because I'm afraid of the Chinese. Our leaders, Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals, have pursued policies over the course of decades that have not stopped North Korea. And if we want to know why North Korea, this destitute state, can build the world's most destructive weapons against everything that we want them to do, then I think we have to look no further than our own leadership. Our policies have failed, and that's put everyone in this room and all Americans in peril. But now, for the first time in decades, we have an opportunity to change the fundamental basis of our relationship with both Beijing and North Korea. And we now have the opportunity, and indeed the motivation, to make stopping North Korea our number one national priority. Both of these are long overdue, but they are preconditions to protecting the American people. Thank you. all go upstairs now. Oh, someone doesn't. Okay, here you go. Yeah, the, the question is, have the North Koreans um, sold nuclear weapons to the Iranians? I almost said that. I almost said that. Okay, here are the details. North Korea has conducted five tests of a nuclear device. All five tests Iranians have been on site, including the chief of the Iranian nuclear weapons program. And that guy, by the way, transited to North Korea through the Beijing capital airport. In September 2012, North Korea and Iran announced a technical cooperation agreement. About a month after that, there were reports that Iranians were at a base in North Korea about 30 or so miles south of the China border, and we don't know what they were doing there. But clearly, they're up to no good. So I think that the point is, I don't believe the North Koreans have actually sold a device to Tehran. But there has been, over the course of years, and indeed um, probably since the beginning of this century, maybe even before then, cooperation between the Iranian and the North Korean nuclear weapons programs. If the North Koreans have the bomb, we have to assume that the Iranians have it as well. We don't know, but we have to assume. 
And we got to remember that uh, Iran each year pays North Korea somewhere between two and three billion dollars for their various forms of cooperation. We know some of that is for missiles, but it's possible that it's also, and I'm sure it's the case, for cooperation on a nuclear technology. So indeed, there is this concern. And you know, you, we think about this in terms of the joint cooperative plan, plan of action. Um, in other words, the Iran nuclear, nuclear deal. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure Iran does not have nukes in, uh, in Iranian territory. But they could have them. I'm not saying they do, but they could have them in North Korea. In September 2007, the Israelis destroyed a reactor in the Syrian desert. That reactor was North Korean design, the same one in, in Yongbin, where they have their plutonium reactor. And indeed, um, there are reports that somewhere between six and 10 North Koreans were killed during that raid. Now, Assad does not have the money for a nuclear reactor and a nuclear weapons program. I believe that essentially that was the Iranian program paid for by Tehran, but outside the borders of Iran. I can't prove it, but nonetheless, we know the relationship between Damascus and Tehran, and so we have to assume that there is something pretty foul going on there. Well, obviously, Kim Jong-un is not going to go for the regime change part of that. Um, and so, yes, in a sense, um, there is, I think, more possibility of actually getting a deal with the North Koreans on nukes if we don't talk regime change. However, the question is, can we get a deal with the North Koreans? And of course, right now, it seems like everyone wants to talk. The Chinese have always wanted to talk. The Russians, they just follow the Chinese. Now in South Korea, you have a president who wants to talk. And President Trump, with his pretty uh, complimentary comments about Kim Jong-un over the last couple of weeks, seems that he wants to talk. You know, he called Kim a smart cookie, said he would be honored to be here, honored to meet him. I'm honored to be here, but our president shouldn't be honored to meet Kim Jong-un, but that's another story. Clearly, though, that's what people, that's what countries now are, are aiming for. I think that we should have negotiations with North Korea, but only when the North Koreans know they have no choice but to give up their weapons. In other words, when they know they're defeated. This is the Ronald Reagan strategy of, yeah, you talk to the Soviets, but you talk to the Soviets when they know they have to comply with the demands of the international community. It's really the same thing. We have um, basically two and a half decades of failed agreements with the North Koreans. Of course, there's the 1994 agreed framework, and then we have the 2005 Statement of Principles. There were a couple of other minor agreements during the course of the six-party talks, and there was the failed Leap Day deal of February 2012. It just seems a problem. And, and the, the problem here is there, there are always problems dealing with North Koreans but especially when the regime is weak. And if I'm right, and not everyone agrees with me on this, of course. Um, people don't agree with me on most things, I should tell you. <laughs> but um, if I'm right about the weakness in the North Korean regime, then it's very difficult for them to deal with the international community in good faith. And so I think that essentially right now you see the Kim regime do things that um, are just completely inexplicable. So for instance, the launch of the missile today. That missile fell within like 50, 60 miles of the Russian coast. What are they doing that for? Russia is their great friend. I think that there are real problems. In, I think that you can explain that if you go through the dynamics of what's happening in Pyongyang. 
but you can't explain it from any other basis. And if things are actually that absurd in Pyongyang right now, it's so crazy, then it means that it's very difficult to come to any sort of agreement. I believe essentially, yeah, you know, probably regime change is the way that we settle this, but that's also a very ugly scenario for a number of reasons. But that's another story, and maybe another question. You're obviously too rational to be a diplomat. <laughs> yeah, it, it makes sense. The biggest victim of North Korea in the long term is China. And the reason is very simple. China is the natural hegemon of Asia, or at least East Asia. It's the biggest, you know? If nobody else, and it has nukes, and if nobody else had nukes, it would be unparalleled in power. So for instance, if you, know, you had countries along its periphery, nobody had the world's most destructive weapons, it would mean China would be that much more powerful. Long term, of course, the North Koreans are convincing the South Koreans that they've got to have their own deterrent. Um, the Japanese are now quietly talking about it, though I don't think they'll move in that direction, and Taiwan. Taiwan, you know, there are a number of people there who think, seriously think, that they should have their own atomic bombs. That would marginalize Chinese power. And so it's not good for China. So long term, North Korea is um, something that undercuts Chinese interest. Short term, though, and you know, everyone says, oh, you know, the Chinese 5,000 years of history, which Xi Jinping now is called 8,000 years of history, oh, they're really long term thinkers. They're not. And the reason why I think um, China supports North Korea is because in the short term, North Korea accomplishes some very important goals for Pyongyang. So for instance, every time North Korea does something provocative, fires a missile, detonates a nuke, a couple things happen. First of all, we stop talking about, it distracts us from things that we're really interested in. South China Sea, cyber attacks, Taiwan, predatory trade practices. No American diplomat talks about human rights at that time. Beijing just loves that. But also, every time North Korea does something provocative, we send our Secretary of State. Tillerson was there about three weeks ago. John Kerry knows the way to Beijing. And we plead for China's cooperation. And because of that, the Chinese, who are ruthlessly pragmatic, good for them, they're ruthlessly pragmatic. And so therefore, they extract concessions from us. And they find North Korea endlessly creates bargaining chips for China. So in the short term, this is really, really good for China. And that's the way Chinese leaders think right now. And there's also another dimension to this, and that is that Hu Jintao, the previous leader, and Xi Jinping, the current one, have identified the US as their primary strategic adversary. So if North Korea is not good for us, and that's what we tell the Chinese all the time, then you know the Chinese think, well, why should I help those Americans? So it's sort of thinking which, you know, a lot of foreign policy analysts, a lot of Chinese diplomats think that our policies, you know, Chinese policies don't make sense, and they're absolutely right, but they're not going to get changed. And just one other aspect of this dynamic, which is a problem for us, and that is that, you know, in China you have this consensus-driven system, and that means policies like those with, with regard to North Korea, they're not going to get changed if there is no consensus to change them. And right now in Beijing, you not only have Xi Jinping who wants to stick it to us, but you also have the People's Liberation Army traditionally has close links with the North Korean military, as we see with the transfer of all this equipment. So, you know, the, the generals and the admirals are not going to allow a move away from North Korea. 
So, you know, China is stuck with a policy that works in the short term, doesn't work in the long term. It will come back to bite the Chinese. And remember, Kim Jong-un tested this missile yesterday. He can point missiles north and west as well as south and east. That's the message to the Russians, but that was also a message, I believe, to the Chinese. And it occurred when Xi Jinping has his grand forum on the Belt and Road in Beijing right now, where he has, what, 79 countries represented in what's called BARF, the Belt and Road Forum. <laughs> How can they make this stuff up? Uh, um, so this is something that Xi Jinping clearly did not want. He may not care about North Korea firing off a ballistic missile in general, but not when he's holding an important party. So yeah, it, it's not good for China. Um, the, first answer, the answer to the second question is yes. Um, I believe the red line is when our satellites observe the North Koreans putting a nuke on top of a long-range missile, and we can see the fuel coming out of the bottom of it, you know, just moments before launch. That, at least President Chang's red line, that's what it would be. I think that that's probably also on the red line of the current administration. They're just not going to use force until they see a nuke on top of a missile, which could be headed towards the United States. If it's a, okay, if it's a type of Dong-2, we see weeks in advance. Yeah, we send, an F, we send the low-tech stuff, an F-16, and we take it out. But with the KN-08, I don't know. You know, it's gonna, the, the North Koreans are not going to say, oh, by the way, we intend to launch against you in the next day or so, so you might want to get your missile defenses up and running. No. They're going to take the KN-08s, and they're going to do what they have practiced in the past, which is to disperse them along the country, countryside of North Korea, where we may not be able to get them, and we may not even know where they are. These things are going to be hidden in, in mountains. They're going to pop out at the last moment. They're going to fire with maybe... You know, maybe 30 minutes, maybe 45 minutes. We may, we may see it, but we may see it too late. Remember, our missile defense system in Alaska and California consists of only 30 interceptors. On the best of days, when they have tests, um, it's 50% reliable. And that means, you know, if the North Koreans were to announce that they were going to do this, we'd have a 50% chance of shooting down one of their missiles. But as I said, they're not going to be so kind to us. And this missile defense system is clearly inadequate. What we have are better missile defenses on, for instance, our Aegis cruisers and destroyers. Those um, might actually work. We have the Terminal High Altitude Area Defense THAAD system in South Korea, at least until Moon Jae-in removes it. Um, we'll have those in uh, Japan. We have the Patriot missile system, <coughs> which is not as quite as good as THAAD, but also will work, and, and that's in Japan as well. So we've, we've got layered missile defense, but no one obviously wants to figure out in a real-life situation whether this stuff works or not because the consequences are just so horrific. <laughs>